let's turn together to First Peter chapter two. We are in the second week of kind of a fall semester teaching series. And so if you're uh, if you weren't here last week, you can easily catch up on the podcast or the live stream. Um, we're going to spend the fall kind of not so much in one text, but in like the imagery that in the the big idea that comes from a text that's found in Jeremiah chapter two. Uh, let me read those verses to you. Uh, it's verse 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so in this this first uh, kind of stretch of Jeremiah, God uh, has sent his prophet to bring to the people of God a, a very important word. And that is that um, from God's perspective, uh, his relationship with Israel, the covenant he's made with Israel is like the covenant between husband and wife. Uh, and he says that you have uh, basically... Uh, through your worship of these false gods, it's like it's like infidelity in a marriage, and uh, you might not even realize it. Uh, you might not even realize that this has happened, and so he sends this messenger in to say, "Hey, this is what's going on," and through that messenger to invite them to return back to the Lord, and so that's basically what is happening. And so uh, last week. We get kind of a deeper dive into into all of that because when you're dealing with the Old Testament or the New Testament, really, but it has to mean what it meant. That's the starting point. Uh, it has to at first it means what it meant to the original from the original author to the original hearers, uh, and then there are secondary things that we draw from that. and And so first it means that um, God calling His people to return to Him. Uh, but what scripture tells us that in, in Christ, we are invited into the story of, of Israel, uh, and that God is not only exposing an is, a pattern with Israel, but a human pattern that it is like normal, like for us to be so enamored with the things that the world is offering to us all the time that we end up looking to those things to find what God himself is has designed us for him to be the provider of. And so we tend to look to these things that are being offered uh, for peace or security or joy or fulfillment. There's all these things. And so what we're going to do in the next several weeks is we're going to look at what, what are those, those uh, broken things that the world is offering to us that we tend to go to? What are the, to use his imagery, what are the cisterns? What are the... What are the water pits that we're digging ourselves, essentially saying no to the, the this endless stream of living water because we want this cesspool over here? Um, and we'll get to all those things in the next couple of weeks. But we're going to start off looking at the first part of, of verse 13 because he says, he says, my people have committed two evils. 
This is all coming from this, this relationship that God has, in this case, with the people of Israel. In our case, we are a part of this same story and the same pattern. And so it's good for us to look in the mirror a little bit and to look at our own uh, patterns of idolatry. But that has to start with understanding who we are in the first place. What does it mean to, to be the people of God? And so we'll talk about that. I'll talk about that today. We'll talk about that in groups this coming week. And then I'll talk about it a little bit differently next week. And then, you know, we'll kind of get that baseline established before we start to get into some of those more specific wells. And so you're in First Peter 2. This is how God describes us. And when I say us, I'm talking about the people who have looked at Christ and said, you uh, you are my everything. You are the savior of the world. You have come to take my sin upon yourself and you've come to bring me from death to life. When you, If you have placed your faith in him, then you are a part of this paragraph. If you've not placed your faith in him, uh, I would encourage you to not leave here without talking to somebody about that. Um, I would be thrilled to hang around afterwards and talk about any anything along those lines. If it has to do with you knowing Jesus, then by all means, stick around. But if you have done that, if you say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ, then this applies to you. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter is writing to uh, to a, a a group of believers in different towns. Uh, some some had a Jewish background and some did not have a Jewish background. And so for those with a Jewish background, uh, him starting off and saying chosen race, holy nation, like those things would have would have brought back all of these Old Testament things that, that were a part of their faith. If, if you were not, uh, if you didn't have a Jewish background, uh, this is like introductory material to you, essentially. And so whether he's reminding them of something they already know, or he's introducing these concepts to them, uh, this is Peter summarizing how God views his people. That when he looks at us, he sees this right here. That he sees a royal priesthood. He sees a nation of holiness. That he sees a people that are his. That he sees a a royal priesthood. That that when he's describing you, um, he may say certain, certain things about you. But when he's defining you, this is what he says. See, descriptions are, you know, your your hair color is this, your eye color is this, your skin tone is this, you do this for a living, you live in this community, your accent uh, is this, which tells tells you where that you actually spent some time living in this particular place, uh, your track record is this. Um, blah, 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 all these stats, you know, in the back of your little baseball card, right? 
about you. Those describe you, but when asked to define you, he says this, royal, chosen, holy, his. That's different. This speaks to the identity of the people of God. We get so hung up in our descriptions, which is foolish on many levels. One of them is because those things change, right? Over time, all those descriptions are going to change. Every one of those stats on the back of your rookie baseball card are going to like be a thing of the past at some point. It's all going to change. What doesn't change is who you are. Your identity is where it's where you get your sense of worth, value, purpose. It's what it's what drives your like everything. It's how you act, it's how you speak, it's how you make decisions. It's how you interpret a situation. It, all, it comes from that sense of identity. And a big part of what this entire series is about is helping us look in the mirror and saying, am I Am I looking to the wrong stuff to define myself? We'll get to that. But it starts with, how does God define you? And this is one of the passages that's worth uh, highlighting in your Bible and memorizing and writing on a sticky note on your mirror or whatever it takes, whatever works for you to remember that this is what's real and true about you from God's perspective. So, we really have to understand this fundamental change that has happened to us in Christ because I doubt that if anyone was to come to you and say, who are you? Like, how do you define yourself? You would say, royal, (laughs) chosen, holy, his. But... That's because we are still learning to understand exactly what we have gone through. So, go to Jeremiah 31. Let's all turn there together. So in Jeremiah 2, he the messenger begins to go. Jeremiah is going and saying, basically, you have uh, committed infidelity through worshiping these other things by... By looking to the creation instead of the creator. Uh, And this has broken the heart of God. Jeremiah 31. Okay, so 29 chapters later. This beautiful word comes to to the people. To the very ones who have forsaken God. And this is what, this is how he starts off. We're just going to go one verse at a time. So... If that is a frustrating pattern for you, I apologize. Verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay? Now, chapter 2, he's like, you broke the covenant. Chapter 31, he's like, so I'm going to make a new one. Okay? This is... Like the most like like hopeful, incredible thing that those who have been on the inf- the infidel side of infidelity could ask for that a nation who has abandoned the Lord could ask for 
is for him to come to you and say, I've got some really good news. We're going to do this again. We're going to make a new covenant. And so what is a covenant? Here's a definition, and I told the first service, I, I, for, I got this from an, an older teaching that I did where I didn't write down who said it, so I don't know whose definition this is. But if it sounds really smart, just, you know, it's not an enemy. Okay. This is a covenant definition. It's an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Okay. So when, when God has a, has a DTR, you guys remember the DTRs, right? Let's define the relationship. Uh, when he sits down with Israel, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't do like a pinky swear kind of thing. He doesn't say, I, uh, this, 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 this. He's like, no, we're, we're going to cut a covenant. And, uh, like it would literally involve a sacrifice. Like you would cut an animal in half. It was a, it was a whole, it was a whole thing. And there's tons of connection to the sacrifice of Christ. There's so much, just, I wish I had time to get into it because it's incredible. But covenants, this is how God um, basically defines the relationship between himself and a person or a group of people. And there are several of them throughout the Bible. Uh, Israel is part of what we call the old covenant. And uh, so it, that, this is God saying, here's, here's how this is going to work. This is who I'm going to be to you and this is who you're going to be to me. These are the terms of this relationship. Um, and I'm, I'm going to guarantee that I will never break the covenant. Uh, but you can break the covenant. Which they have. And so it's God's agreement with how to live. It's, it's, deeper, it's deeper than what we understand as like legal contracts and that kind of stuff. It's relational. And it's incredibly uh, holy to the Lord. And so that's what a covenant is. And the reason why there's, uh, we call that the old covenant is because whenever you have an old something and then there's a new something, you just call the, the new one the new one and the old one the old one, right? Boundaries has two bridges, right? Anyone who's lived here for any length of time refers to them as the old bridge and the new bridge, even though it's been around for decades, right? At some point, come on, Garrett Graves, we're going to get a third one. And I don't know what we're going to do with that one because we'll have to relabel them all. But there's new bridge, old bridge, new mall, old mall, like all that kind of stuff. And new covenant, old covenant. And so why make a new one? Well, look at the next, look at the next verse, 32. It's not like the, the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. See, the reason there needs to be a new one is because they broke the old one. And so the old covenant, God comes to Israel uh, and leads them out of Egyptian slavery, establishes them as his people, gives them the Ten Commandments, sacrificial system, sets, sets them up. Says this. This is how you're going to live. This is going to be the purpose of me having having my own people. That that through this established people, a promise he made to Abraham was that the nations were going to be blessed. That through this people group, not only would the Messiah come, but everyone who interacted with them would see the blessings of the one true God taking care of this nation and saying that must be the one. That must be the real God because. 
look how good he is to them and look how much they love him. Can we be a part of that? Like that's, that's the goal. That's the point. The problem was the, he made a covenant with people who were broken. Like sin entered the world and broke us holistically, broke creation as, as well. And, and so the covenant that he makes with broken people, but the broken people don't know that they're broken. They don't know that they're dead on the inside. And so he gives them Ten Commandments, but they can't keep the Ten Commandments. They think they can. They think it's all about behavior. They think it's like, oh, cool. Here are the, here, here are the ten things that I either do or don't do, and then everything will be all right. And just like most rules, once someone tells you not to do something, all you want to do is that very thing. And that pattern was happening over and over and over again. Like, I know I'm not supposed to steal, but man, I just can't help but steal. I know I'm not supposed to lie. I can't help but lie. I know I'm supposed to honor my father and mother, but man, they're getting on my nerves. I know I'm not supposed to worship this eagle carved into a tree stump, but for some reason, I just want to bow before it and ask it to give me everything. Because what if God doesn't come through? What if he's not the real God? You know, just blah, blah. And so after these cycles over and over and over of not being able to keep the commandments and over and over and over of having to sacrifice these animals, generations of this pattern, it was time for the prophet to show up and say, do you now understand that there's a bigger problem going on here than your behavior? There's, there's, there's something, there's something else happening your problem is not external. It's not your, it's not your actions. The problem is what's, where that's coming from. It's because you are dead. You're spiritually dead. He says, it's not going to be like the covenant I made with their fathers. It's going to be a different kind of covenant. Look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The first covenant, where did God write it? Do you remember? He wrote it on stone tablets, apparently with his finger. Do you remember that part of the Ten Commandments story? And we've all seen Charlton Heston come down the mountain, you know. Uh, bring the Ten Commandments on stone. So you got a, a covenant written on something that's external and on something that is dead. He says, this covenant, I'll put it with, within them and I'll write it on their hearts. So old covenant, external, written on something dead. New covenant, internal, written on something that is alive. This this is the this is the fundamental exchange. Then when when God comes, and we'll look at this this verse next week in Ezekiel, but He says, "I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh." He's using that same imagery. I'm going to take the old covenant out of you. I'm going to put the new covenant in you. And this one this one is alive. This one you can feel. This one, this one, as your heart beats, you, you're like understanding something like, okay, I was dead, but now I'm living. 
And it's going to, it's going to change everything about you. And so rather than the focus on external things and behavior, he says, let's, let's get to the core of the problem. Let's solve the real problem. And then let's let that change you from the inside out. Let's, let's let that transformation come over time. Which is why people who've been walking with the Lord, like, like walking with the Lord, not just going to church, like walking with the Lord for a long time. You can, you can see the wisdom. You can see the Christ-likeness because that transformation has worked its way through their lives. He says, and I, you'll be my people. I will be your God. That that's the, that's the short version of what the new covenant is all about. It's a pathway to being the people of God. It's who we are. Verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Okay, what, is, what, what does that even mean? Well, here's, here's a summary. It means that this new covenant is for everyone. The old covenant was just just for the Israelites. The new covenant will be for everyone. From the least to the greatest is what it says. That all all are invited into this relationship. So not a single description about someone rules them out of this being an invitation to come into the family and into the covenant. So skin color, eye color, hair color, where you're from, your gender, what you do for a living, uh, how good you've been, how bad you've been. None of those, none of those things. It's just what God says about you. Look at the last part of 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What he's inviting us into is forgiveness. To say, let me, let me take the sin from you. And let me give you my life instead. There's this exchange that happens. And in that exchange, a lot of things happened. Like when I, if I were to reference the, the gospel... Most uh, most of us church kids would think would go to uh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and that's absolutely a uh, pretty important part of the gospel. He absolutely did that. But the, but the good news ha- it has a, a lot to it, and a, one of the good things about it is that uh, in in that moment, in that like you place your faith in Him moment. You go from being dead to alive, but you also be, become something that you were not before. That there's a, there's an, an internal transformation there that is unlike you know any real comparison. And the um, the closest thing, and this has been used by believers for a long time, the closest comparison in nature is the caterpillar to a butterfly. You know, the caterpillar becomes the butterfly, and there's no going back, right? If you could interview a butterfly, I don't recommend it, but if you could, 
I don't know that that butterfly would want to go back to being a caterpillar. Um, one year I was talking about this, and there was a uh, uh, Jacob Cohn was here Jake, from Aero Pest Control, and I kept saying worm instead of caterpillar, and he was like going nuts. A butterfly would not want to be a caterpillar again. It, it can't. Why? Because it's a new creation. That's why. So when Paul comes along in 2 Corinthians and he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's, that's what he's talking about. That the old you has passed away. That the old covenant has gone from you. That the heart of stone has come out and the heart of flesh has gone in. And he has written this on you, within you. That you are not the one you used to be. That there's a fundamental like identity shift. And so uh, all my life I've heard people say, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know? Wrong. <laughs> you, to say you are a sinner, that's, a, that's an identity statement. You say, I was a sinner. I am a saint saved by grace. I am royal, chosen, holy, his, saved by grace. And what that means, though, is when we are acting in a way that is idolatrous or sinful, however you want to think about it, that just means we're acting in a way that's contrary to who we really are. We're, we're misunderstanding things. It would be like the butterfly acting like a caterpillar again. And you're going, why would you? Why in the world would you do that? It's like, oh, I don't know. That's probably a whole dialogue we don't need to even entertain. But that's, that's what's happening. And so like for us, as the people of God, to know that, that he, has, he, he says he will remove our iniquity and remember our sin no more. What happens, what happens to a young lady... When God, uh, in, when she places faith in Christ and He takes her sin away, what's what's left? A daughter. A daughter. When a young man, what's what's left? A son. And so, who are we? Family. Like we are the people of God. We're the the household of God. That's what is left. He says, I will remember your sin no more, which, which doesn't mean that he forgets it. In the original language, it, it, it conveys this idea of, of, I will not hold your sin against you anymore. Isn't it so much more beautiful that God remembers everything we've ever done and yet still looks at us with this incredible smile on his face and says, royal, chosen, holy, mine. He remembers it all, but it's like, that's, I've taken it from you. That's not who you are. This is who you are. So let me read again. You don't need to turn to it. Let me just read again those verses with all that background kind of in there. When God describes you, this is how he describes you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now 
you have received mercy. See, this, this passage should take on life when we're, when we're seeing God correctly and we're believing what he has to say about us. He's not lying to us. And so a lot of where we'll go in the next couple of weeks will come down to seeing him correctly and then him, him helping us see ourselves correctly. And then things just kind of fall into place. Like they just, they, they work their way through us as they're supposed to. And really, like seeing God correctly, uh, then seeing ourselves correctly. When we see ourselves correctly, we're, it's really just comes back to seeing God for how awesome He is. Because there's not a one of us that has earned our way into this reality. Like none, none of us have kept the rules. And so He says, okay, these verses can now apply to you. None of us has brought anything to the table except the fact that we're made in his image. And we believe that he has come to redeem that. And so even a proper understanding of ourselves leads to the worship of God. That's why Peter says, here are all the things you are that you may proclaim his excellence. The excellencies of the one who's called you out of darkness into light. That's that's who we are. It's what we do. And from those understandings come all these other parts of life. And so in the next few weeks, we'll get into the weeds on some of the other things. But now we're kind of just getting this baseline idea. And so you who are in Christ, you, you can claim these about yourself. God put these in here so we would know how he sees us. And that makes all the difference in the world. Right? So let's stand together. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we join our hearts and minds together in full acknowledgement that none of this is about us. And even in, even in declaration of our identity and who we are, it's just because you've made us into this. It's not because of our own awesomeness or anything we've earned or any rules that we have kept. Just your kindness to us in Christ. And so help us, God, to be humble, but yet at the same time very confident because of your activity among us and within us. That this would be something that we would grab onto in a way that that humbles us but drives us forward. Because all this in, in view, idolatry makes zero sense, you know. And so we want to get there and we want to stay there. And so as we sing a little bit or pray and just respond to what you're stirring within our hearts during this time it's just kind of it's just free on purpose because there's a lot waiting for us on the other side of this worship service but nothing's more important than this right now help us to sing or to pray and to really just soak up the goodness you have for us and even as we sing songs declaring who we are it all comes down to you who 
who brought us to this point and who has recreated us and made, a, made your life a part of our lives. We love you and we thank you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.